Are you ready? Let's, let's dive into the message. Um, I, I'm back again. Uh, I'm a little bit jet-lagged, and so this will be interesting. But uh, thanks for bearing with me as we bring... This is week four of our Revelation series. If you're not sure what we're doing here at Venture, we, we like to go through books of the Bible. One of the things that we, we in doing so, it kind of forces you into some of the difficult areas in Scripture. You have to walk through some, sp- some spots that might be tough. Um, it's really good to teach through those things because it builds your faith. You begin to realize that all of the totality of the Word of God is God-breathed, and the Bible says it's profitable. It will actually bear fruit in your life if you know the Word, all of it. And so we're going to not just focus on just a part of it, but all of it today. And we're going to look at the book of Revelation. This part of the series is uh, the first three books of the Bible. In particular, we're into church number two of the seven churches that Jesus uh, wrote to and gave a specific message to. So today we're in Revelation chapter 2, verse uh, 8 through 11. I want to begin by thanking just some people that uh, really mean a lot to me. Uh, first of all, my staff. I love my staff. They are amazing. We've got, uh, we've got some just terrific people who are on mission, who love you, um, who love the Word of God. And so I want to thank Bethany. I don't know if you're here, uh, right here. Thank you, Bethany, for bringing the Word a couple of weeks ago. Did she do awesome or what, right? It was amazing. And I also want to thank Terry. Terry was in the first service who brought the word last week. It's, it's so great that we have good Bible teachers here, and there's really a good depth of, um, of understanding of Scripture. I love that. I want to thank Nicole and the rest of the team for just keeping this place running and humming. You actually make me wonder whether I actually do anything around here, because, I mean, I've gone for two weeks and everything uh, is intact and looks great, but I'm still glad to be here. Uh, and so thank you for all of you guys who make this place awesome, okay? Well, that said... I want to confess. Are you ready? Confession. I am a history nerd. I, I do. I love, I love history. I, I love to nerd out on I actually buy books on purpose uh, and read them for enjoyment on history across all different subject matters. And, so, and the, the thing that I lo- love about history is their stories, and stories are important. We've always told stories throughout history, and the stories of history are real. They're, uh, they resonate with us, and they repeat. They tend to have a cycle to them. And, st- and stories matter. History matters. You know, some of you guys are like, well, you know, don't be giving me dates, man, because I'm not into the whole thing about, like, you know, timelines and thinking about dates and geography. Like, you know, don't lose me in that, you know. Well, I'm not going to do too much of that today, but I do want to give you some backstory because it's really important to understand that the Bible occurs within the context of history. The Bible isn't just something that, you know, is, is good for us today, but didn't really matter a hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, two thousand, four thousand years ago. The Bible has been applicable throughout human history. And so we want to understand, like, not only what what we can learn from it today, but really what God was saying to the specific group in the cultural context of the time. And so we want to see it through the lens of the writer and as well as through the lens of, you know, 2020 American Christians today in Moscow, Idaho. So there we go. I'm going to go into, um, into some history, and I want you to um, understand that it matters because your study matters. When we approach the Bible, you don't just want to approach it for what can I get out of it, but sometimes you do need to study it. And I'm going to encourage you to be a good student of the Word of God, to care about studying the Word as much as you care about studying, say, the things that you have to to get grades um, to graduate. Uh, be, a, be a good student of the Word of God. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, God, as we open up uh, your scripture today, as we read from it, I pray that you would add, illuminate, even multiply what the words have to say. Speak deeply to us, Lord. Move us in the direction of obedience. Move us in, in our understanding of the Bible today, in Jesus' name. Amen. So some background uh, to the city of Smyrna. Smyrna. It's our second church. We had Ephesus last week, and today is Smyrna. It's a city in Asia Minor. So if you can think of this, the uh, modern-day country of Turkey, it's sort of that western side of Turkey. That would have been Asia Minor. And the city of Smyrna bragged in all their inscriptions that they were first in Asia. That's what they said. They were the first in Asia. Many reasons why we'll get to it in just a moment. But they, they inscribed that on, on all their pillars. And as they begin to excavate Old Smyrna, they're finding it written in Greek that uh, all over the place that they saw themselves as first in Asia. Do you guys know who Homer is, wrote, wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey? Homer was from Smyrna. So really interesting that a lot of the really incredible Greek literature came out of this city. Uh, interesting that Jesus chose to reveal himself, and we'll see that as we read it in just a moment, as the first. He said, I am the first. So he's saying that to a, a city which says they are the first in Asia. Smyrna bragged about being a reborn city. They, they were destroyed, and then Alexander the Great came and rebuilt the new city on top of the ruins of the old. It was a city that in the minds of the people had died and come back to life again. And then Jesus reveals himself in Scripture as the one who died and came back to life again. It would have resonated with the people in Smyrna. The great legend of Smyrna that would drive their thinking was that Alexander the Great, the conqueror, rebuilt the city, and here's why. So he was asleep in the ruins of the old city, and he was sleeping near the ancient temp temple of Mount Pagos. And while he was sleeping, according to him, he had this dream, and two spirits appeared to him. And he interpreted this as uh, this was the mother goddess of Sybil. And these spirits told him to rebuild the city to its former glory. And it was an important legend in the minds of the people of Smyrna. Uh, so you know the, the old city of Smyrna is actually now within the larger uh, Turkish city of, of, of um, Izmir. So it, it, I don't know, you guys probably don't know where Izmir is, but it's actually a very large city. That's one of the top, I, I believe the top five cities in terms of population in Turkey. But within the city of Izmir, Smyrna is right smack in the middle of it. During the first century when Jesus wrote to the church in Smyrna that was home to about 100,000 people, which made it a very, very large city. Ephesus, when Terry spoke last week, was a large city in Asia Minor. Well, so was Smyrna. Smyrna was a very large city, about 100,000 people. It was considered vital to Roman rule. Why? Well, there was three factors at play. Number one was its location. It was right on the Adriatic Sea. That had a deep seaport. It had um, access to a lot of um, great natural harbors. Um, it was it was that that key. Uh, uh, confluence of trade, so money flowing in and out, culture flowing in and out. Uh, the second reason would have been influence. Smyrna was an incredible influencer. I mentioned uh, Homer and the Iliad, so it boasted rich history. Smyrna was an incredible city, vital, um, a, a live city. Think like New York today. 
Um, they had an incredible allegiance to Rome and were very proud of it. Izmir uh, today, uh, one of the things is they're excavating the city, of the ancient city of Smyrna. They're finding lots of inscriptions to Rome. It was one of the very first cities to worship Caesar openly. One of the interesting things about Smyrna is they would, give, they would have these great events, uh, cultural events. They would gather the city together and they would hand out these things called laurels. Let me explain what a laurel is. A laurel is like a crown. It was for achievements in battle where you'd uh, win, you know, you do something incredible. Think of like uh, our Congressional Medal of Honor. You would do something incredibly brave. Or you would achieve uh, athletic prowess and be at the top of your game. You could receive a laurel. So that would have been a familiar theme in Smyrna. Just as a, it's, it's just an ordinary floral arrangement was interesting. But the value is in the prestige and the honor of the giver. It was given by the leaders of the, uh, of the city, to, and, and the giver of the crown was a person of great prestige. Average people wouldn't have received a crown, wouldn't have received a laurel. Uh, it was only for elite athletes, top performers, but it was in, within this cultural reality that Jesus wrote to the church, keeping in mind the laurel, because it'll come up later. It's also the first city to build a temple to the goddess Roma. Under Domitian, the emperor, when this letter was written, it was compulsory to worship Caesar uh, under the threat of death. If you didn't worship Caesar, you were killed. That was, the, that was what your choice was. This obviously created great turmoil for the Christ followers in the city because they couldn't obviously bow to Caesar. And in the city, a band of Christians attempted to live out their faith in this catastrophic choice that they had to make, either to submit to Caesar or to suffer the dire consequences. The results were, of course, that the, the people were living under great persecution. One of John's disciples and friends, one of his young disciples, was this uh, brother Polycarp. I love that name. That's a great, I mean, if you want to choose a male name, like Polycarp's a great name. This guy was amazing. And he was one of John's disciples, and he grew up under John's uh, leadership, and then what we know is Polycarp was, um, was executed. He was burned at the stake for the amusement and the people of Smyrna. Why? What was his crime? It was refer refusing to, do, uh, to deny uh, that Jesus is Lord. He couldn't do it. This happened hundreds of years ago, right? Thousands of years ago. Why is this relevant today? This is in our life. I'm not going to go out and get hung in the city square for proclaiming Jesus. What is, how is this still relevant today? Are you a runner? Anybody here, any of you guys? I know there's a few runners, right? Raise your hand if you're a runner, okay? And, and I know some of you guys, I know, like, you're hurdlers, and we had a few long-distance runners in the first service. Uh, and, but do you, do you guys know what it's like to hit the wall? Anybody know? Right? Ben, do you know what it's like to hit the wall? Okay. Yeah, right. Now, so what, when you hit the wall, basically, that's a moment where all of your natural ener energy reserves are completely depleted. They're gone. And what you're running on from that point on is just sheer willpower. You don't have anything in the tank. But what separates really good runners from really great runners are those that can persevere 
not only through the wall, but who know how to handle their energy at that point. And what Jesus is saying here, the message of Christ, is that I'm asking you, he's saying to the church, I'm asking you to endure. I'm asking you to push through the wall. I'm asking you to make it, to, take, to go a little further, to go a little longer, to make it, to push through the wall. That's what he's saying. That's the message of Jesus. And this is only one of two, two letters in our seven letters to the seven churches where Jesus offers no correction, right? In all the other letters, he's saying like, hey, I have this against you, but also here's some things that you're doing right. No correction to the church in Smyrna, just encouragement. Read this with me and notice how Jesus introduces himself. Revelation chapter two, starting in verse eight. I'm just going to read the whole section and then we'll just go back through it. Verse eight, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have a tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Imagine getting this letter. You know, you might have gotten it along with all of the other seven churches, and you would have thought, maybe, couldn't we just be like the Laodiceans? Like, why, 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 is, it, why is this going to be so tough? Because what Jesus is really saying is not that things are going to get better. There's so much hope. He's actually saying it's going to get worse and worse and worse. But he says, I know. God knows. He knows. The very first thing that you have to understand in your tribulation and in your poverty and in your situation is, I know. He knows. He knows it. He knows it. He knows it. You're thinking, no, he doesn't. He doesn't get it. He knows. I know your tribulation and your poverty. Every citizen had a choice to make in Smyrna. It was declared Caesar is Lord or suffer the consequences. Now, of course, this put Christians in this very, like, precarious situation, you know? Because, I mean, you know the choice has to be Jesus, but it has to be really hard to make sometimes. Many suffer this choice today. And I want to open your eyes to that fact that there is tribulation, that there's persecution that is happening all around this world today. As we sit here in our heated, comfortable venture church on the Palouse, in many locations around the world, there's intense suffering and persecution on behalf of Jesus Christ, that people are suffering, not here, but there they are. And I want to be reminded of that, not to make us feel guilty, but that we can support in prayer and understand what suffering and persecution look like. Tribulation in the Greek means crushed. Think of it like a grape crushed into wine, producing something better as a result, but an, a crushing nonetheless. Nonetheless, Jesus says, I know. He recognizes and understands our pain. He's saying, I've been there before. I suffered as you suffer. I walked the Via Dolorosa. I was crushed as well. My body was broken. My blood was spilled out. I understand your pain. I know your suffering, your persecution. But there's something going on in this passage that's so much deeper than it looks like at the surface. 
As Americans, we have the freedom to worship according to our conscience without persecution. Now, I mean, some of us might think, you know, it's tough being a Christian today because you'll get made fun of on campus. And, you know, that's not the same as persecution. That's uncomfortable. Yes, I, I grant it. Being a Christian today and especially being a bold Christian can cause some really um, uncomfortable blowback. But that's not the same as dying for your faith. And so, you know, what I understand is that nobody's going to hang me today outside in Friendship Square. But in many places in the world, that's exactly what I would be facing by standing up boldly and declaring Christ publicly. Let me give you some statistics. You can find some of these at a website called Open Doors. Um, each month, 214 church properties are destroyed around the world. Each month, 214 church properties. Imagine coming to church, Adventure Church one day, and it's locked up, padlocked. You can't go in, or it's burned down, destroyed. Imagine that happens 214 times around our world. 7,500 believers die every single month for their faith all around the world. Today, in 2020, in how many countries? 60. 60 countries. It's an astounding amount of countries around the world where Christians are being persecuted. I, I, uh, I struggled. I was actually thinking I might play this video. Oh, I found it, and it was... Um, it was of a Syrian mother and her children. I decided not to play it because it's actually pretty graphic. Uh, but uh, let, me, let me give you, just as an example, so we can talk about this one family in this one country. In Syria today, maybe you didn't know this, but there's, I didn't know this, there's 1.2 million Christians in Syria. 1.2 million. That's 12% of their population. 12%. There's a lot of Christians in Syria. Here's what it's like for this mother and her children. She knows that she might have to face the moment where she would have to um, either deny Jesus as Lord or die. And she was literally praying for her children, for her little kids. She had, I think, four little kids. And she, her prayer was, I pray that if they ever face that choice, that they pray that they stand firm for Jesus, even if it costs them their lives. Now think about that. I, I don't pray that way for my kid. I pray that he would stand up boldly in his school and, 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 and stand up for Jesus. But I don't pray that if he faced down a gun, that he would, he would choose Christ over his own life. Like, there's mothers that pray that way. So what happened in Smyrna is happening today, and I want you to feel that. It's not something that happened just that far back in history and doesn't occur. It, it occurs today. It occurs all over. And I want to ask you two really important questions. These are the questions that will land in your heart and in your life. And you might not think there's any application in here for you, but there is. Number one, what does your faith cost you? What does it cost you? I'm not asking what it benefits you. We all know that. We get friends in church. We have a better life if we follow Jesus. We avoid certain things that might destroy us in our lives. We, God protects us. He gives us the Holy Spirit. We're empowered to live faithfully in service to him. I know what the benefits are, but what is the cost of it? There's a cost of following Christ. If you want to live a safe life and you want to protect yourself from all the boo-boos of life and live a safe Christian life, you certainly can. You can reap the benefits but have no cost. But what if you only had a cost. At the end of the day, if it hasn't cost you anything, then what exactly is your claim of faith? What exactly is it? 
if you have no cost. To illustrate this in kind of a silly way, imagine that um, there was a group of animals and they had all gathered together to have a breakfast. Then everybody was supposed to bring something to the breakfast. And so chicken comes and chicken brings a dozen of her best eggs. She lays them out, you know, beautiful hen, and they make omelets, right? But then, but then the pig, he contributes um, a ham, <laughs> All right, right? So, so the chicken donated, or if you catch this, but the, ha- the pig sacrificed, right? It cost him. It cost him. And I think what challenges me is that around the world, for so many people, the cost is the ultimate cost. And for me, it's not. But there's a second question, and that is this. What are you facing today, right now at this moment, that is more than you can take, that is absolutely at the end, you cannot take anymore? Yes, and I know the Bible says that God will never give you more than you can handle. There's only one problem with that. That's not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. Because sometimes it's more than you can handle, and it needs to be more than you can handle, because it's only in that moment where you trust the living, loving soul savior of the world and when you have nothing you realize that he is everything i remember and thank you by the way for those of you guys that prayed with our family over the last um three or four weeks when it's really we've been facing an incredible emergency with our son he was in the icu and i remember um before i was called it was like midnight and they said you got to come to gritman the doctor's really worried and she's got a life flight blaze up to spokane to sacred heart and I mean, I was just like, you know, at that moment, you just realize this is serious. And, and I got there, and then I, the thing that scared me the most was just the worried look on the doctor's face. Just, she, she didn't know what to do, and she was, she was very nervous. And when she was nervous, I got really nervous. And then when I'm on the ambulance uh, ride, because it was, they couldn't helicopter him up because of the weather, so we took an ambulance. And that whole ride, I, the, the whole time I'm looking at him, and he's got, you know, just his head is covered with wires, and he's got, you know... Um, tubes in his nose and, and all that stuff. And I'm like, I don't have anything. There's nothing I can do. And it's in that moment where it, it, it was out of, it was more than I could take that I had to really stop and think, okay, I got to trust you, God, because I, I don't know what, I, this is totally out of my control. And I want to trust you. And I just begin to pray, God, I trust you. I trust you. I trust you with the life of my son. I trust you. I trust you. And it was, it was just in saying that over and over again that I, I began to experience this grace and this peace like, and, and that wasn't God saying, you know what, it'll all turn out all right, he's going to be fine, he won't die. You know, I didn't know any of that, but I began to say, just God, whatever, you know, whatever this is, I'm going to trust you for it. What are you facing today that is more than you can take? The thing about it is that the enemy, he uses pain to destroy our faith, but God wants to take our pain to build our faith to challenge us, to grow us in ways that we could never grow without it. It's so hard because we are always looking for the benefits. We want, we want to pray, God, bless me, give me, save me, make, make this life so great. I want to experience all the joys. I want to experience all the good stuff. Accrue to me, O Lord, enlarge my territory. We love those prayers. Nothing wrong with those prayers. But sometimes imagine that we could be praying those things when we say, God, Take this pain, take this burden from me, praying away the very things that God wants to use to stretch us and to grow us and, and to mature us. 
Then he says, you know, I know that you're poor. To the Smyrnans, Jesus says, I know that you're poor. Yeah. And why were they poor, by the way? Because there was no job opportunities, because if they became Christians, their families would disown them. All of a sudden, it's not like you can get into a bus and drive to another city. You're stuck there in this apocalyptic situation where there's no social welfare. You can't own a job. The Jews are after you because you're not paying the tax to Caesar. And it's nuts, man. It's It's like the end of the world. It is the end of the world for you. Like, you just, you cannot imagine what that must be like. Can't get a job, can't travel, you can't, you know, your family doesn't love you anymore, doesn't want to be with you anymore. It's all scary, it's all dark. What do you have? What do you have? And Jesus says, I know that you're poor, but you are rich. You're rich. Doesn't make any sense, does it? Good news, you're getting persecuted. Good news. And then he, and he goes further in verse 10. He says, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. He's not like saying, well, you know, if you just hang on a little bit, just hang tight, things will get better. No, he's saying it's bad. You're poor, although you're rich. <laughs> get back to that in a second. But, but this is going to be worse. Uh, you know, wait a second. Is there any good news in this? And then he says, be faithful unto death. Talk about the ultimate suffering. Like, there's an end to it. Be faithful unto death. Drown out your fear with faith, he says. You know, stand on the promises of God. Stand on who he is. Now, one of the things that I want to say here is that what I'm not saying in in any of this is that I want you to, like, leave church today and to go out and do something really dangerous and risky for God, put your life on the line in a dangerous situation. I'm not saying that. But I am saying this, that um, you are bought with a price, You are not your own. And what lordship means is that sometimes we have to go beyond safety and we have to go beyond security and be willing to do something occasionally that's a little dangerous for God, that's a little risky for God. What would you do, how far would you risk your faith to follow your creator? Would you go to the point of pain and beyond? What are you facing today that is more than you can take? What does it cost you? What does it cost you? You're not your own. Be faithful unto death. Unto death. Did you realize, and I hope that you know this, but if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, did you know that death is an upgrade? Do you need to hear that again? Do you need to hear that again? Are you, are you afraid of dying? If you're following Jesus, can I remind you that, that death is an upgrade for you? A massive upgrade. In fact, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that this world, this life, is as close to hell as you will ever experience. Think about that. Now, for those of you who aren't following Jesus, and for those that don't know him, I'm afraid that this is the closest thing to heaven that you'll ever experience. Death is an upgrade. Jesus came that you might have life and have it more abundantly, but that doesn't mean that life is full of goodies and joy and gifts and things. And I'm here to remind you that, yes, we are not Smyrna, but there's a lesson in that and that the treasure is eternal. The treasure is eternal. The man that went out and sold everything that he had that he could buy the pearl of great price. If you remember that parable, the idea there is that the guy knew that everything he had wasn't comparable to the thing that was his true riches, 
And what Jesus is saying here to them is that, yes, you're poor. Yes, you don't have anything. Yes, you don't have a job. Yes, you don't have a car. Yeah, your friends have left you. Your family has left you. Yes, I know things are bad. I get it. I know. If anyone knows, I know. But you are rich. You have the pearl. You have the prize. And you don't even know it. Just know it. And what I'm saying here to you, church, is know that you have the prize of the higher calling in you. And sometimes that calling is going to take you to dangerous places to do dangerous things for the kingdom of God. Are you willing? Are you willing to walk the kingdom road? Upside down kingdom, man. Upside down. You think that you're poor, but you are rich. Upside down kingdom. 1 Peter 5, 9 says... Resist him, the enemy. Be firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brothers, by your brotherhood throughout the world. Just keep in mind today, maybe when you're eating lunch, eating dinner. This is, by the way, I don't believe in like passing out guilt. That's not, I don't operate that way. This isn't a guilt thing. This is a gratitude thing. But when you're eating today, just remember the freedom of being able to take a bite of food, to enjoy it, to savor it, to, to feel the pleasure of it nourishing your body. When you take a drink of clean water today, like clean water, gratitude, when you drive out of here, when you walk out of this parking lot, remembering that you just were able to be with a group of believers that could acknowledge Jesus as Lord in a place like this and do it publicly and, and walk out and nobody's going to kill you on the way out. Nobody's going to blow you up. Nobody's going to take you into prison. Nobody's going to harass you. That's an amazing freedom. I hope that you'll experience gratitude. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. What Peter, first Peter is saying is that, yeah, you're suffering, you're being persecuted, you have trials and tribulations, but you gotta know that there's others in this world that are experiencing that as well. You know, yeah, I was like a little kid, and I remember, you know, every time you wouldn't eat your food, your parents would say, what? You know, there's starving kids where? Starving kids in Africa, right? So it's the guilt trip. Okay, well, you can send this to them then. You know, like, it's not very motivating. And that's not what Peter is saying here. He's saying, look, when, when it gets bad and gets tough, know that you're not alone. I know. There are others that know. As bad as it gets, number one, it can get worse. <laughs> and number two, my grace is sufficient for you. And my power is made perfect in your weakness. Let's pray together. Father, you're the same God that say, said to the Smyrna church, I will give you the crown of life. Um, God, I know for those that were in Smyrna, getting a crown was like uh, getting the medal of honor. It was a huge honor. And you were saying, God, that, um, that they were the greatest of the great. They were designated for the, big, the winners, the athletic achievers, the greatest of the great. And you said, I want to give you the crown of life crown of life. They would have understood this as something like, I'd, I'll never get a crown in this life. I'll never, I, I, I'm, I'm a social outcast. I'm on the, I, I'm on the outs with society. Like, they don't even want me alive. They don't want me here. And you said, I will give them the crown of life. God, I pray that that would mean something to us today. 
We just want to take a moment and understand what that meant. I pray for those that are here today that are going through some hard, hard stuff. I mean, it's not persecution, but God, it is. It's, it's real. Nonetheless, it's real. It's potent. It's powerful. Burdens that people are carrying that are intense. I just want to pause for a moment, God, and imagine that you are wanting to put a crown of life on our heads and say, well done, you good and faithful servant. You've walked well in your suffering. There are those today who may at some point be sick. There are those today that may at some point lose everything, maybe at some point might face a financial catastrophe. And God, when we have nothing, may we remember back to this message in Smyrna that you want to give us a crown of life, something more valuable, something significant. And it's the giver of the crown. It's not the crown itself. It's the giver who's important. Help us to understand that. Help us to pray for our brothers and sisters all around the world that are suffering persecution like we can't imagine, having to make choices that we can't imagine, having to, you know, have prayers for their kids that just we would never pray, can never imagine praying. Oh, help us, Lord. Help us to love and to support and to give and to pray. In Jesus' name, amen.